Well, it's great to be with you here at Mars Hill. I've been looking forward to uh, today for a long time. And uh, it's just marvelous to see how well you're doing and that you are also back together again, many of you, here inside of the building. Um, when I think about how rewarding that is for us to be back together, it reminds me that when God created us, he created us with bodies. We have an embodied life. Our bodies matter. Matter matters. And so therefore, when we get together again, there's something that resonates inside of our souls. And um, uh, I know that this has really been meaningful for you. So anyway, welcome back to the building. If This is our second week, I think. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, following on from what Ashley discussed last, uh, last weekend, is how is it that we can be Jesus people for the sake of the world? And um, how is it we can identify how the earliest Christians thought of themselves in those categories? The book of Acts is the place really we ought to go. The book of Acts was written not simply to be history, but as a guide. The book of Acts, especially in its first four, five, six, seven chapters, is, sets itself up to say, look, this is how we we framed our life together as Jesus followers, and so therefore, this is how we won the Roman Empire, essentially. So therefore, you and I can use the book of Acts beneficially. It can be an inspirational guide for how we look at our life inside of the church. So here's what I'm wondering. If we could parachute into the first generation of Jesus' followers right after the resurrection, what would we see? If we joined them, what would it feel like? And if we brought those experiences home to our own churches, to here at Mars Hill, well, what is that going to feel like? All right. So what I would like to do this morning is I would like to paint a profile of what it was like to live inside of the early church and to get an idea for us of what it would be like then to be Jesus followers for the sake of the world as they were Jesus' followers for the sake of their world. Well, the first thing that comes to mind immediately when I digest these early chapters in the book of Acts is this. These Christians lived in what I call an ambivalent context. In other words, the rest of their society wasn't exactly sure what to do about them. Romans and Jews who met these Christians never knew exactly what box to put them in. Because first of all, look at it this way. When they talked about their faith, they talked about the gospel, everybody knew they were following a public criminal who had been crucified, namely Jesus. So you can see judicial eyebrows went up everywhere inside of their world. But on top of that, when the Romans met these Christians, they, they looked at them and noticed that they ignored all of the imperial politics that were going on in the first century, and they did not even attend all of the vast network of temples which the Romans built in virtually any city. So therefore, the Romans were ambivalent. Do they see these people as good Roman citizens? And then for Jews that they knew around Jerusalem, well, they looked at these Christians and they noticed they don't obey the law. Jesus, they said, had replaced the temple and all of its sacrificial system. Well, if that's true, what does that mean for Judaism? So you can imagine Jewish leaders who are not Christians living in the first century were really unsure about these people. So the earliest Christians faced insecurity. They were viewed as social outsiders wherever they moved early on. 
They were uncommon. Think about it like that. The second thing, which is obvious from these chapters, is that they were living inside of a culture that was fairly insular. That's the second thing. The world of Jerusalem, where this all really begins, was very much committed to what I call tradition and preservation. Highly insular. They wanted to keep things just the way they had always been. In other words, they had their scriptures, they had their traditions centered around the temple, and they said, don't change stuff for heaven's sakes. So therefore, as the early Christians came into this very traditional context, they were viewed as irregular outsiders. Jews in Jerusalem had this sense of purity. And so therefore, they wanted to make sure that Jerusalem was not stained by those who came from elsewhere. So therefore, they had very strong opinions about Gentiles, very strong suspicions about other people like Samaritans. There was little curiosity about those other cultures and somehow bringing them into the network of life around the temple in Jerusalem. So therefore, um, when you look at their life in Jerusalem, you can imagine there were some odd connections with the people they were around. Now, just to remind you that this is not true of all Judaism. I'm just simply talking about conservative Jerusalem Judaism in the first century centered around the temple. You could find Jews living all over the Roman Empire. They traveled everywhere inside of the empire. So there were other Jews out there. But this, inside of Jerusalem, very different. Inside of Israel, not so much. I, had, I was describing this once to one of my students uh, uh, at uh, Calvin Theological Seminary where he worked. And a student says to me, oh, he said, he said, I'm from West Michigan. That feels exactly like West Michigan to me. And I said to him, well, I'm not so sure. Try Amish, Pennsylvania. That might be a better framework. All right. So the first thing is they're in this ambivalent context. No one's know how to put them in a box. Secondly, they're emerging out of a really insular culture and thirdly, they believed that two explosions had taken place inside of Israel and there was no going back. The first was about Jesus. He had come into Israel as the Messiah. He had been resurrected. He was now the heavenly Lord. And therefore, Israel had been visited by a visitor from above. Now, let me make clear about this metaphorical geography here. On the one hand, you might say that we live in this world below, the world of creation, this platform that we all know around us. But then there is also, we could say, the world above, and that is the world that God lives in, the world of heavenly, heavenly realities. And so therefore, when they began to talk about Jesus, they did not say, well, he's just a prophet from below. Instead, he is a divine visitor from above. So therefore... We describe him not simply as a Jewish Messiah who, like Moses, comes from below. Instead, he is our Lord and Savior. So he has actually been, been, been resurrected to take a place in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So what the early Christians said was we have a new navigational star that is going to guide our spiritual lives. They were not focusing on the temple and tradition, but on newness, on renewal, on rethinking what it means to be God's people. Spiritual innovation 
was natural to how they lived. So you could think of it this way. Because of the arrival of Jesus, because he had come as a visitor from afar, so therefore you could say the earth had shifted on its axis. Jesus was adjusting gravity. Somehow things were not going to be the same. All right, so that's the first explosion. The other explosion they talked about was the Holy Spirit. They followed Jesus, and they also would tell you, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is in such a prominent place, because it sets the tone of everything that comes later. You might think of the imagery like this. You know, on the day of Pentecost, there were small flames of fire which settled on all of their heads as the 120 people were in this upper room. But that imagery of fire actually comes from the temple because there was also a candelabra in the temple and God has always been represented by fire inside of the Old Testament. So you might think it was like this on the day of Pentecost. The presence of God, as it were, that fire in the temple has actually then moved and descended on this holy gathering on Pentecost. The presence of God inside of this world has been redefined because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. No longer temple, but holy gathering of people. Now, so you can imagine if you were a Jewish rabbi listening to this, you would say, these are huge these are huge explosions that you're describing. Of course they are. Time has changed. The fourth thing that you would find Christians talking about here is that the church, this gathering of men and women, this, this collection of people that are now growing inside of Jerusalem, they are a new creation. A chapter has turned in Israel's story. So therefore... Jesus is not simply a minor character in Israel's story. He is the character who redefines every other character. So if you're talking about Adam or you're talking about Abraham or you're talking about Moses, I don't know who you talk about inside of the Old Testament, but the coming of Jesus changes how we think about those major characters. So this event was epic. But they really wanted to say it's more epic than simply affecting Judaism and Israel. It is an epic event that impacts the entire world. So they called Jesus the Son of God. One thing you may not know is that Augustus, the Roman emperor, he called himself the Divine Son. Divius Filios was actually stamped on all the coins minted in his era. The emperor liked to call himself with his title. So therefore, you have a group of Christians who are saying, you know, we are worshiping the true son of God. And you can imagine that Caesar wondered about that sort of change. So therefore, when you see Paul's life, you can see that Paul shows up in the city of Athens, kind of the headquarters of intellectual life for the Greco-Roman world, and he gives a speech saying, what you've been seeking in Greek philosophy, we have found in Jesus Christ. Paul does the very same thing when he writes his letter to Rome, the capital of the entire empire. He writes his letter to the Romans and in effect says, there is something that has transpired that is not simply Jewish. It is actually for the entire world. All right, so therefore the church is a new creation. 
This faith is not simply a private affair about me and my salvation. This faith of Christ is not something about the preservation of the history of Israel. It is not local simply to Israel, but instead it is global for the entire world. This is why the early church, unlike Judaism, sent out missionaries to the entire Mediterranean. They understood that this message was not tied to one tribal identity. Instead, it was for everyone. So when they thought about themselves moving through the empire, what's interesting about these Christians is that as they are living out this new creation reality, they have no faith in local governments. They do not even talk about imperial politics. That's what's interesting about their life. Jesus has charted a new course. So he was the king that was greater than a world full of kings and everyone knew who they were. So let me sum up. So therefore, these are the big ideas that are swirling inside of the early church. What did it mean to be one of these Jesus people who were giving their lives for the sake of the world? They moved from tradition and preservation to innovation and expansion. Let me think about that for a minute. In other words, when they thought about their lives, these Christians didn't say to themselves, well, look, what we want to do is go back to another period and preserve and reconstruct and hold on to what has been behind us. Instead, their cultural reflex was to look forward toward innovation. Uh, innovation. Not preservation, but new innovation and expansion to the world. For sure, there were Christians who slipped back into that preservation, even in Jerusalem. You can hear it sometimes when you listen to Peter. But those who were at the forefront of this entire new movement, they certainly were going in a different direction. So the heart and soul of Jesus' people was innovation. This is how they were going to change their world. All right. So you can imagine if you parachuted into their world, this is what you would have heard as you sat around with them. This is how they talked. So how did they accomplish this? If they were going to create a new company of people, how would they actually implement this kind of new life together? If we dropped in on them, what would they expect of us? What would we see about the way they lived? What kind of cultural values did they have internally? It's easy to put together. It really is. Let me just make a short list for you. One of the remarkable things about how they lived was how they handled their resources. The early church was known for generosity, financial generosity. Probably because they were outsiders, this faith they had came with a cost. And people who live on the margin understand that it is costly to live there and they begin sharing their resources as poor, marginalized people in every society do. So the early Christians welcomed in the poor and all of the marginalized and they took care of them. Here's an illustration of this. Did you know in the Roman world, um, one of the things that people worried about was burial. In fact, if somebody died and they were poor inside of a Roman city, they would just put their body outside in the wilderness somewhere a mile from the city and the body would be consumed by animals. If you had wealth, you actually belonged to a burial society and they would then put up a monument 
bury you appropriately, and you're, yeah, you would be in a cemetery probably. But the poor didn't have this. And so one of the interesting things is the Christians stepped into their world of poverty and marginalized people and said, we will bury you. You give, a, you give Christ your life, we will take care of your body. That's amazing. It really is amazing. And people noticed. These kinds of innovations like this made a difference in their world. It wasn't long before the Christians were known for building hospitals and schools and so forth to better the places they lived. So the first thing you'll notice when you're living in this group is they hold their money loosely. It wasn't theirs. It was a gift from God. So therefore, passing it on, no problem. Second thing you would have noticed as you looked into a gathering of first century Jesus followers is that they were intentionally diverse. Look at the roll call of nations that you can see in Acts chapter 2. Or look at the characters who appear in the letters of Paul and throughout the New Testament. You will find Samaritans, you will find Gentiles. This is a revolution. Here is what we don't think about. We live in a society that is relatively diverse. I know that we're separated into our pockets, but for the most part, we are a fairly diverse society. The ancient world wasn't like that. It was tribal. They had strong cultural divisions. You came from an area, you were always known from that area. So therefore, these early Christians, they contradicted that norm. What they said was, it doesn't matter your tribe, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter what language you speak, you're going to be a part of us. You can see this in their speeches in the book of Acts. Here's Acts 10.35. In every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Every nation? Absolutely every nation? Even those nations that we have had wars with? Are you kidding me? The early Christians said yes. They celebrated difference. They were not threatened by it. They saw change as an opportunity, not as a threat. All right, so you would have seen them sharing their resources, certainly. You would have seen them welcoming in people who were not welcomed in other places. And the third thing you would have noticed inside of their community was they talked about encounters. Being a person who belonged to Jesus was not about doctrine or rules or social movements or ethics or politics. It was about an encounter. An encounter. Not an encounter with an idea, but an encounter with a person. A person who had a spiritual reality. Two odd words were frequently used in this gathering of people who were living together. The first was the gospel and power. They used the word power all the time. So when they talked about their faith, they didn't say, well, this is all about wisdom or this is all about reason. This is all about education. Come to us and we will educate you into reality. No, they said it's an encounter with power. The second word they would use inside of this community when they talked to one another was Slaves. 
Did you know in most of Paul's letters when he introduces himself, he says, I'm a slave of Christ. Now, we often translate that as servant of Christ. We should not do that. The Greek word is doulos. It means slave. This is a hierarchical society. At the top is Caesar and the senators and a whole list that goes all the way to the bottom and they call themselves slaves. So the early Christians said, well, this is who I am. I am a slave. I am owned. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm an owned person. I was bought with a price. So if those early Christians who really began their lives in the middle of that hierarchy could assume a title of doulos or slave, it was noticed. If you stepped into an early Christian community, you would have seen divine events, signs and wonders. You simply can't avoid this inside of the book of Acts. The power of the Holy Spirit does not simply show up in conversions to Christ, but it shows up in healings and the defeat of Satan and spiritual warfare. So therefore, the early Christians, you would figure out quick enough, lived in a world they believed that was populated by spiritual forces. They were dark spiritual forces. And therefore, as a Christian, you are living engaged in spiritual sabotage. So inside of the church, they would say, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And therefore, I imagine every church had an inventory of who had what gifts because we are all engaged in the same kind of power experiences inside of the world. And then here's the last thing I wanted to tell you about what life was like for these guys. They were bold in how they talked about what they knew. What is striking about the early Christians is that they have no fear and they have no shame. Here's what I mean by fear. They are pursued by the authorities. They are arrested. They are beaten. They are jailed. They are killed. You'll see this in the early chapters of Acts. That is crazy. In fact, this became one of the hallmarks of Jesus' followers inside of the Roman Empire. They had no fear of death. No fear of persecution. That's crazy. It really is. The second thing is, they were bold. Having no fear leads to boldness. And so therefore, they talk about their faith in Jesus even when they're told to shut up. They will talk to any audience in any place at any time. But let's be clear about something. Their talking agenda was not political or cultural. Not at all. They incessantly talked about Jesus and how the entire world deserves to live under his judgment. And Jesus is the only way out. So in their society, you can imagine, these people were uncommon. They were astonishing. And I am sure that there was a lot of chatter in Roman and Jewish towns when they described them. All right, so what did they produce? They had this worldview that was different, I just described to you. They had this different kind of life internally that really set them apart if you stepped into it. But I think what all of this produced was an unparalleled community. This is a community that was poised, that was poised to say, 
the church is not simply one more organization amidst other organizations. The church is the organization that can save the world. The church, this gathering of men and women in Christ, they represent a kingdom which goes beyond every other kingdom. And so therefore, you need to decide to join this kingdom because that is where your salvation rests. You know what the best rival was for the early Christian church? It wasn't Judaism. It wasn't other cults. It was the Roman Empire. Because when the Romans figured out that the Christians were actually offering an alternative way to view the salvation of our world, they began to persecute them aggressively. So the early Christians produced, through their worldview and through their life together, a different way of seeing reality. They were innovative. They were expansive when they thought about the future. It wasn't about tradition and preservation. They looked forward instead of backward. They did not focus on the things of this world, but they took their marching orders from heaven. They were curious and open to seeing how things might change. They were not defensive and protective. This made them fully equipped to be Jesus followers for the sake of the world. So the inevitable and painful question, the risky and provocative question that lands in our laps is this. What features of the early church have we lost? Are we courageously innovative anymore? Have we mixed our message with culture and politics so that it has lost its poignant flavor? Has Jesus moved from the driver's seat to the back seat and other things really motivate the church? This is tough. This is tough questions for Mars Hill. And honestly, they're tough questions for any church. We know that the early Christians won their world. Now we need to figure out how much we can imitate them, learn from their strengths and weaknesses, and take on our world too. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we pray that you would give us the insight, the wisdom, the courage to understand how you are calling us to be your people in this world. Lord, we want this not simply for ourselves. We want this for the sake of the world that you so desperately love. We pray in Christ's name.